Hello, everyone. Welcome. Today, I'm joined by Bobby Azarian. Uh, Bobby's a science journalist and cognitive neuroscientist with a PhD from George Mason University. Uh, his book, The Romance of Reality, How the Universe Organizes Itself to Create Life, Consciousness, and Cosmic Complexity, is coming out on uh, June 28th. And I had the opportunity to uh, read the book and was really, really excited about it. Um, and uh, Basically, um, yeah, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, uh, but it was really thrilling. It brought together a lot of the things that I've been exploring at the moment in a very kind of concise, succinct way. And uh, anyway, thank you so much for, for coming on to talk a little bit about it and uh, dive into some of the, the endlessly rich material in this book. So uh, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be part of the metamodern spirituality community. Um, I'm just now you know, finding the the meta modern world and uh, understanding what that means more. Um, I actually, you know, kind of came up with that term myself when writing the book when I was unhappy with postmodernism and thought I may have invented a term in my uh, ignorance. But um, no, it, it really feels like I'm uh, finding my tribe with these uh, meta-modern communities. So awesome. thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I, I totally relate to that. And uh, yeah, no, that that's that's good to hear. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of gen general sense of finding one's tribe and also feeling like um, uh, that strange feeling of feeling like you either coined something or came up with an idea and then finding all these people that are also like, you know, all riffing and, and, and vibing on this particular set of ideas. And you're like, oh, there's more people here. So this is, this is yeah. rich. Um, well, cool. Thanks for that. And yeah, it's been really uh, exciting and fun to have you uh, in the Metamodern Spirituality Facebook group and getting into some of this material there. But um, yeah, let's dive into it. This is this is the book, The Romance of Reality. Um, I'll just set it up on my end and then and then I'll throw it to you. But the reason why this book, I think, was so exciting for me was, um, oh, I don't know, a little over a year ago, maybe I really got into uh, exploring some of the work of Ken Wilber and um, was interested in in his uh, layout of uh, this sort of complexification narrative, which uh, was sort of the first way that I'd heard it articulated in in a manner that really presented this sort of beautiful, rich um, kind of cosmic story uh, of 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 this um, increasing complexification all the way starting from the Big Bang, uh, leading through the rise of life and then to consciousness. Um, and this opened me up into a whole terrain of fascinating uh, authors. Uh, Tehar de Chardin is someone you mentioned in the book, um, yeah. but also Henri Bergson. And, and there, there's just, a, a, it dovetailed a lot with my own intuitions of things I've been exploring for a while, kind of since getting into, or becoming more familiar with some of the uh, German idealists and, uh, you know, getting interested in this notion of the evolution of consciousness and the evolution of spirit, uh, however one wants to conceive of that. So when I found uh, these this set of materials, I got really excited and I started really diving into some of the primary source material for a lot of this narrative. So I got into uh, Eric Kaisen and I think that's how you say his name, uh, Cosmic Evolution and all that paradigm. Um, and he, you know, sets everything up very much in terms of a thermodynamics kind of framework using laws of entropy to frame uh, basically complexification through 
Ilya Prigogine and dissipative structures leading to more and more complex forms that arise over time, uh, and then eventually into teleological systems. And so I started, I felt like I was onto something. I was like, I had a, a, a promising lead. And I started really then trying to think about, well, how could I really form this in some first principles and started thinking about how energy might be flowing through these different things and how this sort of ineluctably leads to uh, you know, structure and order and consciousness. And then I found your book <laughs> and I was like, oh yes, this is really bringing all this together. I feel like uh, something like this is what I probably would have wind up writing uh, had I had another five years or 10 years even to really explore a lot of this material. And so it just felt like uh, a really wonderful validation for a lot of these ideas. Um, and so I got super excited about it and, uh, and you take it in a lot of similar ways, um, but I'd like to then also uh, in a minute, just kind of throw it over to you and get into some of the what this narrative is. But then uh, maybe in the latter half of our conversation, talk about, you know, some implications, some potential critiques, um, some other directions that all this could be going in. Um, but for me, I just wanted to set that up for why this was so uh, rich, because it was like, oh, um, this was the, uh, the greatest uh, presentation uh, of these ideas in the most concise, succinct, articulate way that really takes you from, you know, first principles, laws of energy and entropy, and brings you all the way to the emergence of agents and free will and conscious beings. So um, that was a lot of fun. Uh, but as I say, also have some interesting critiques and would love to throw those by you. But um, yeah, that's my spiel up front. And that's how I feel like a lot of this dovetails with this uh, stuff we explore here. Um, I guess I, in throwing it to you, I'd love to hear you maybe give a kind of synopsis of this book, or otherwise we could kind of pick up anywhere in this uh, narrative that you want to go, but uh, that, would, that would be a good idea for me. <clears throat> okay, yeah. So um, I guess the, the narrative is not that different from the French philosopher, paleontologist, and Jesuit uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, uh, who you mentioned. And... Uh, I, I think that narrative uh, gained some scientific credibility with the work of the Belgian biochemist, uh, Ilya Prigogine, uh, who wrote a wonderful book called Order Out of Chaos. And that kind of set the stage for a field that we now call non-equilibrium thermodynamics or non-equilibrium statistical mechanics. <clears throat> And so prior to then, uh, really with the work of Ludwig Boltzmann and uh, Josiah Gibbs uh, and uh, Maxwell, they created this field known as this statistical mechanics. But the difference is that uh, statistical mechanics really deals with uh, closed systems. So systems that uh, do not have any energy flowing in from the environment and they are at or near equilibrium usually. And this is kind of an inert static state uh, that closed systems will naturally tend toward. So you can uh, have a mathematics, uh, a statistical mathematics of the way these closed systems evolve in time. But Ilya Prigogine was interested in the spontaneous formation of order in nature, because we do see order. We don't look around us and just see a universe that is becoming increasingly disordered. Mm -hmm. uh, we start, the universe starts with the emergence of stars and planets, 
And now, uh, at least on this planet, we are surrounded by all forms of organization, biological, social, technological. So Ilya, Ilya Prigogine, um, he, to, to, to get to the story of life and these higher forms of organization, uh, we got to take baby steps. So he was really interested in just explaining uh, what are known as dissipative structures. And those are the forms of dynamical order that you see in nature. For example, whenever you take the stopper out of your bathtub or your sink is draining and you see the spontaneous uh, formation of a whirlpool. Uh, a hurricane is another example. A hurricane emerges uh, when there is um, sufficiently large gradient, uh, a thermal gradient uh, caused by a difference between the uh, cold ocean and the uh, uh, colder upper atmosphere and the warmer ocean. So basically a hurricane will emerge to dissipate that gradient because nature just does not like gradients. I think um, it was Dorian Sagan uh, who made the quote, um, like nature abhors a vacuum, nature abhors a gradient. So if there is a temperature gradient or a chemical gradient, uh, a dissipative structure, a sort of form of dynamical order will emerge to collapse that gradient uh, and in doing so, it uh, creates some entropy. Um, a, a dissipative process is a process that does work and creates heat, and that dissipated heat uh, is entropy. So um, non-equilibrium thermodynamics was the scientific beginning of a theory for order. Later, in the 60s and 70s, um, and you know, Prigogine's work, I think, began in maybe the late 40s. Uh, I know like 50s and 60s, it was really uh, influential in the 70s too. But a uh, tiny bit later than that, uh, people started working on uh, the origin of life. And well, well, let me just stop you there just to clarify this thing or to, to, to emphasize it, because this is what was so mind blowing and fascinating for me. And I think what this book did a really good job just so clearly expressing, which is like, I was reading all this stuff about dissipative structures. I'm like, oh, cool. Order arises. You got Bernard cells, you got, you know, whirlpools and stuff like that. But it was the, I, I hadn't fully clicked that it was precisely in order to, uh, how would you say, um, fulfill that natural tendency of nature to uh, regularize gradients that the order emerges, right? It's, it's the very entropic force of, you know, um, yeah, things things equalizing or calibrating over time, or you know, you leave a hot cup of coffee on the on the counter, and it'll become room temperature because things will that 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 difference that gradient between room temperature and the coffee cup uh, that is, gets equalized. So nature itself is just always naturally equalizing things, and yet even though generally that we see that creating disorder and more entropy and and more lack of uh, organization. In certain instances, it's that very mechanism that sort of works to uh, create disorder <laughs> more effectively and efficiently by creating temporary structures of order. Is that, I mean, that's basically the idea there, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. 
when writing the book, though, I, I was thinking about it a lot. And there are kind of like two different ways to look at that process. So when this narrative started becoming more popular, uh, I was going to mention after Prigogine, uh, Stu, Stu Kaufman at the Santa Fe Institute um, started thinking about autocatalytic sets. Uh, there were some people before him that were looking at that. Uh, Manfred Eigen, I think is his name. Um, but uh, yeah, people started trying to go beyond what Prigogine was looking at and looking at life. And then um, uh, maybe like five years ago or so, Quanta and Wired put out an article on uh, Jeremy England, and mm -hmm. he had this theory of dissipative adaptation, which basically explains how out of this tendency to dissipate energy, you get order. And, you know, maybe that's the story behind the origin of life. And after that came out, you know, people were, were really excited about it. I was glad because people were learning about like Prigogine, even though England, I don't think talks about the history of mm. his ideas much as he should. Um, my professor, who was an external uh, faculty member and chairman of the Santa Fe Institute named Harold Morwitz, he was one of the premier origin of life researchers. He wrote a book in 1967, I think, called Energy Flow in Biology. And he made the statement, the energy that acts, uh, the energy that flows through a system acts to organize that system, mm. which was basically, basically the dissipative adaptation uh, mechanism. Mm. So uh, people started learning about um, this science of order, but then I started hearing a lot of people saying that uh, all life is, is just like a vehicle to create more entropy and disorder. Right. And that and, was the, the Dorian Sagan book, uh, right? W wasn't that sort of the thesis of, of him? And uh, he was working with someone else that, that basically got got to that conclusion. Yeah. Eric Schneider, I think uh -huh. is his name. Um, yes. But in a way, I think he was asking the same question as me as far as like, is that really what's happening? Like, is the mm -hmm. universe going towards equilibrium as a whole? I think Dorian Sagan, too, is asking the question in the book, uh, is, is that really what's happening, that that life is just uh, this transient uh, process in this um, process of the universe moving towards thermodynamic equilibrium, which would be this inert state. And I don't think that is necessarily the conclusions we can draw mm -hmm. from this. And how I started to look at it, and again, this was influenced somewhat by, by Morowitz and that quote that I just mentioned, uh, is that uh, dissipative structures and life uh, is a way for energy to flow. And when energy flows, uh, it creates entropy, but it's really this pressure um, to kind of uh, unlock this uh, locked up energy that is the engine for the creation of order. So how I came to see it is that, and Prigogine, uh, I think was sympathetic to this view as well, is that um, uh, entropy is really the cost of creating order in nature. So it's not that life wants to create entropy, 
you could see it as the cosmos wants to create order, that it's this self-organizing right. system and right. that entropy is simply the energetic cost. Well, you, you, you have a good line in the book about like, um, you know, the, use, the universe isn't seeking to create entropy or life even isn't seeking to create entropy any more than your computer is seeking to, you know, put out heat through its computation or, you know, any, any kind of entropic dissipation of heat or, you know, unusable energy or whatever. Um, that's, that's not the reason why the thing is consuming energy. That's the byproduct of it. And so it's sort of putting the cart before the horse. If you just then interpret this whole mechanism as, oh, the universe just wants to, you know, wind down as quickly as possible. Um, and so, yeah, I think some of that disentangling is important though. At the same time, I mean, I guess that is a matter of interpretation. You could view it that way. Um, uh, or maybe not, maybe is it, is it more than a matter of interpretation or is there, is there something in the mechanics that would suggest that it, uh, that looking at it that way is actually really problematic? I think, uh, it depends on where the whole process is headed. So, uh, is it the case that life is transient and it's just collapsing these local gradients or is it the case as seth lloyd argues uh from mit and the santa fe institute he has a book called programming the universe he sees the universe itself as this giant quantum computer and that what it's computing is complexity and as it computes evolution unfolds um so it could be that the universe is some sort of self-organizing system and this, you know, might remind people familiar with philosophy, with like uh, Whitehead's process philosophy or yeah. or organic cosmology. I think it's called uh, this idea that the universe itself is something like this evolving uh, adaptive system organism, and that uh, this cre this order creation doesn't come for free. Uh, there's an energetic cost to the work that's being done. Yeah. So well, that's maybe sort of the, the unit. Yeah. Maybe it's not. Maybe the universe isn't trying to create entropy at the maximum rate. Maybe it's self-organizing at the maximum rate uh, possible, mm. given the constraints, and that entropy is just the the cost. Right. So yeah. So so uh, so con continue with that story. Then you were about to bring this into the origins of life and abiogenesis and that that part of the the story so and as you say right it's sort of like whether or not we interpret this whole process as just furthering you know entropy or whether whether we see it as uh furthering organization order and uh and ultimately consciousness is going to depend on where this story is heading so yeah uh, take us take us a little further down uh, the path of uh where these processes sort of you know naturally lead uh, what we're starting to see now what origin of life experts are starting to come to a consensus about because of this work in non-equilibrium thermodynamics that is kind of like exploded in the last decade is that uh, where you have the right conditions for life, like the, the right geochemical conditions on a planet, uh, life seems to emerge inevitably given enough time. It's not going to happen immediately, but it would happen more quickly than what would be predicted by what's called the chance assembly mechanism uh, or this frozen accident theory. So when we were understanding life and, and when we were understanding DNA and, and how complex a system 
must be to be able to make copies of itself. You know, it must be encased in some sort of enclosure that keeps things in, that separates the internal states from the external world. So that's a Markov blanket. Uh, that's a, in, in cells, that's a, a lipid uh, bilayer membrane. We have to have genetic material, so something like DNA or RNA, and we have to have proteins to uh, basically turn the blueprint in the genetic material in structured system. But the problem with that is you get this kind of chicken and egg thing where um, to create DNA, you need proteins, and to create proteins, you need DNA. Um, RNA was somewhat of a solution for that because RNA could act as both a catalyst and uh, a store of, of genetic material. But there was still talking about metabolism, the, the, the system uh, has to be able to metabolize energy to stay far from equilibrium. That's a huge point that I'll get to in a second. But uh, so for a self-replicating system, you need tens of thousands, maybe at the very least, like thousands of molecules working together in an integrated fashion. So the thinking was that the only way that could have occurred, something like that could have formed, was that you just had this chance statistical fluctuation of all the right molecules needed in maybe something like a warm little pond in a, pr a protocell. Uh, but what we're starting to see is that uh, the origin of life is this gradual process where you have energy flowing through a very simple chemical system uh, that energy starts to organize that system. And that system will rearrange its configuration to be able See, and here goes back to this point about is it for dissipation or is it for creating order? So it will reconfigure itself, you could say, to dissipate more energy, but you can look at that same fact as that it will reconfigure itself to be able to extract more energy mm -hmm. to sustain its ordered state. Mm -hmm. So in finding an arrangement that allows it to extract that energy and sustain its ordered state, it, it burns that energy up, it uses it, dissipates it, converts it into heat, increasing the entropy of the environment. So you do have that story, but yeah, really, and, and Jeremy England, Jeremy England's work kind of uh, it, it describes this in mathematical detail, but uh, what you're getting is that this chemical system uh, starts to find a configuration that resonates with the driving frequency, the, 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 the frequency of the uh, energy that's flowing through the system. So- Well, and I, 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 I want to I throw into the mix here too, like, um, yes. And so I find this uh, part of the narrative to be really crucial and helpful too, because I would say that one of the recurring leitmotifs in your book is uh, sort of two narratives that are both um, incomplete, uh, that have been warring with each other for a long time and and therefore not really uh, being able to be productive in any way. Those two narratives being, on the one hand, this sort of, you know, reductionistic, uh, we'll break everything down to its parts, everything's mechanized, you know, mechanisms. And so if we can just uh, 
find the kind of smallest configurations that will explain everything. But in the process, uh, you get to some pretty ridiculous conclusions if you, you know, do that. Um, and this sort of reductionist materialism uh, has sort of led to a, a particular methodology that, uh, yeah, basically leads to, oh, well, where did life come from? Well, chance. But then you have people look at that and they're like, well, that's absurdly improbable. And so then you get the other narrative come in, which is tends to be uh, kind of traditional religious narratives or supernatural claims, uh, intelligent design, things like that. They're like, it's too improbable that this could have ever happened by pure chance, which it is. And seizing on that, then they posit, well, this was just some supernatural deity who came in and, you know, configured everything. And what this narrative that you're uh, talking about and what the complexity sciences in general, I think, offer is a way that says those are both wrong, <laughs> that we can we can understand things. Yes, mechanistically, certainly naturalistically, um, and that 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 are not simply reducible to parts or to chance mechanisms. Uh, but we don't need this sort of, um, you know, supernatural interference to, to do that work. We can explain how basically purely the flow of energy quite naturally on its own accord will do things achieving certain configurations, uh, that, that achieve statistically unlikely configurations, if that makes sense, if just left pure chance, but are, uh, but are actually, uh, necessary, I guess you could say, when there's a flow of energy leading to organization. And so um, I think that that is one of the beauty, beautiful things about this whole narrative is it's that it gets to these really thorny uh, questions and problems, existential, religious, spiritual questions about origin of life and these sorts of things, right? And it's able to provide very compelling, fascinating answers that doesn't just uh, lean into, you know, well, it just happened by chance and it was all fluke accident, which is both really depressing and also just statistically really silly, but nor does it kind of concede, oh, well, then there must be some divine hand that shaped everything and just, you know, made sure that everything, you know, happened just right, et cetera, et cetera, which is also in its own way, uh, you know, a very incomplete and imperfect way of thinking about this. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to throw that in there because um, I feel like this whole narrative does a lot to explain how these sorts of things can happen and solves a lot of the problems that have hitherto been kind of, uh, you know, uh, different narratives at loggerheads with each other. So I just want to throw that in there. Yeah, thank you for contextualizing that. Uh, I think it's it's important to mention because I really think uh, the whole reason for <clears throat> this scientific position of seeing life as a fluke uh, Jacques Monod was a Nobel Prize winning uh, French molecular biologist. And when this chance assembly theory uh, was popular, he made a poetic statement that uh, I don't know um, verbatim, but basically it said that since it, life must have emerged from such an unlikely fluctuation, uh, that we are alone. Uh, in the cosmos. So it paints life as an accident and takes away all of this like meaning from life or potential like, you know, cosmic significance. Uh, but it also, um, yeah, for example, just some people are interested in is there life elsewhere in the, the cosmos? And it kind of kills that idea too. But we're seeing a reversal in that and this idea that life emerges inevitably where the conditions permit, and Carl Sagan 
said life must be a probable affair as soon as conditions permit up it pops back i think probably in the 70s so it wasn't everybody that was convinced of this uh, accidental life narrative uh, but it was the prevailing worldview i think because uh it was in line with this reductionist materialist worldview that's really important to talk about because i do think uh, there was uh, something of a culture war going on between religion and science and religion and atheism. And uh, I think this is really bad, too, because I think it kind of steered science in the wrong direction. But what was happening, I believe, uh, and that I write about in the book, because I do uh, with the mechanisms, you know, with describing all of the science, I, I try to kind of give some historical context mm -hmm. on why, you know, People didn't believe this at one point in time or believe this. Uh, so, um, so yeah, basically you see that religion and science were at this war, which caused science to basically take the, the stance that was pretty much like the antithesis of anything religion says. So if religion says yeah. that uh, life has purpose and meaning, that science has to say the opposite, that we live in this complete meaningless, purposeless universe. Which is, which is a fascinating thing, too. And I, I really I thought you do a good job dealing with that dynamic, uh, talking about that in the book. But it's really fascinating when you think about that so much of of, um, <laughs> you know, so much of the kind of existential concerns uh, got caught up in sort of, as you called a culture war or basically just a, a kind of rather, well, non-scientific, right, uh, kind of spat of uh, of warring narratives basically um that uh, and i say it's non-scientific because it's not necessarily then based on evidence or empirical observation or it's just sort of oh, okay well these kooky religion people you know and they're i mean i mean like that is that's a legitimate critique as well too because i mean if you look at the narrative of science and what it had to comp you know compete with and deal with of anti-evolutionary thought and you know people trying to basically uh put put the kibosh on even teaching evolution at all um anytime there's any uh, uncertainty about something wanting to immediately explain it as some cause of a supernatural agent etc so like committed to naturalistic and well let's just say naturalistic explanations for things uh it makes sense to be like all right well let's not we're not doing that at the same time, there's this sense of like, you know, baby being thrown out with the bathwater, right? Because it's sort of, well, we're not doing that. And so even to the degree that you're talking about things that don't really impinge much in, into, you know, our empirical observations, we're still going to say that you're wrong, that life is meaningless, that, you know, life is a fluke and, and, uh, and that there is no meaning. It's all kind of this dreary, uh, careless, indifferent cosmos, right? And um, so anyway, yeah, again, I feel like this is one of the fascinating thing about the, the complexity sciences and, a lot, and, and, and what your book gets at, because it forges this middle path where you can where you can really lean into the science, but it's not leading in this direction of this dark, dreary, mechanistic worldview uh, uh, that's reductionistic and sort of um, ultimately kind of, uh, yeah, a meaningless cosmos. But uh, sorry, continue, please. <laughs> Thank you. No, no, it's much easier to do it like going back and forth. Uh, this is great. So yeah, it was a war of narratives. And it's interesting because uh, people like Teilhard de Chardin and Bergson, the French uh, philosopher who wrote the book, Creative Evolution. Uh, Teilhard's book was The Ph Phenomenon of Man. Uh, even though Teilhard 
was religious in some sense. Uh, I should say that his book had to be published after his death because the Catholic Church saw it as heresy. Um, heresy. Uh, yeah. So um, basically, uh, him and Bergson both said that they were describing a mechanistic natural evolutionary process, even though he did have these spiritual views. So mm. Bergson's, um, it was the Elon Vital, the vital mm. force. Mm -hmm. And Teilhard had a term called radial energy. Uh, Aristotle had intellecti. But now this is going to kind of get abstract, but I think it's a, a really interesting point. Um, and I'm glad to talk about it on your channel because it maybe gets, you know, away from some of the science. But uh, those people were seeing something that was real. We didn't have the paradigm to understand what that thing that we call agency was mechanistically. Mm -hmm. So they're pointing at some real phenomenon and saying, like, this is something that we need to think about because this isn't the way that inanimate systems act when you look at life life moves with agency so its movements are directed towards goals where when you have an inanimate object like a rock or something it's not moving in any way other than what would be predicted by uh newtonian physics so they saw a real phenomenon they didn't have the mechanisms to describe what it is uh and they gave it some kind of abstract name because you have to invent a name. So we call it, you know, Elan Vital uh, or teleology. And science scientists didn't like that. They go, no, that's not something real. Everything is just made of particles following these trajectories. And if you could look at everything zoomed in enough, you pulling some complex uh, mechanistic uh, predetermined uh, equation. And later, with the invention of the concept of information, and we see that agency arises because these systems, through evolutionary processes and self-organizing processes, uh, start to adapt to the external world. What adaptation is, is a process of knowledge accumulation or information accumulation, specifically information that allows the system to predict or anticipate events in the environment well enough to survive well energy and avoid threats well enough to evade thermodynamic equilibrium what you see by kind of investigating this is that there is no clear cut line between the physical and the metaphysical or even the natural and the supernatural because things that are not accounted for by the current paradigm, which is always gonna be incomplete and have some ignorance, uh, will be categorized as something outside of science. Mm. But then science catches up and mm -hmm. we start to articulate that mechanism and it's still the same thing. It's still this, you know, it was understood to be this kind of mystical force animating agents. And to me, there's nothing more mystical than an evolutionary mm. process that creates spontaneous order and creates information that animates systems. So yeah. um, it's 
well, you it, get into this word I, game when you yeah. try to call something mystical or not. It's like maybe that thing is real. Mm. Uh, we just don't have the framework to explain the mechanism at detail enough for scientists to be like, okay, we accept that. But you're seeing it now. Everybody's accepting this science of purpose, this science of agency, mm-hmm. and even you know progress towards higher complexity. And But here's the thing. Here's the interesting thing about it. They go, okay, we don't live in a mystical world. Like that that thing that you called mystical that you thought was really like magical, it's real, like exists, like your theory was right. That's something that we need to care about. But we're going to just say that it's not like mystical or magical anymore. <laughs> to me, we're playing this language game that we don't realize that we're playing uh, because even if there was some sort of supernatural force, right, some sort of mystical something that was driving systems, right, that we didn't understand physically, you could still create a science of that. If we discover that force, we would start to be able to describe it in terms of statistical mechanics, and we would naturalize that. Well, right, right. So, so, so it, well, all right. So I actually just a couple of days ago, saw this little meme that speaks to this, right? It's got like, on the one hand, it's got all these scholastics, right, you know, at their desks and, and, uh, and uh, I, and over on the other side, it's got like Galileo and and Newton and and Kepler or whoever, and they're sort of like you know they're like laughing at the scholastics talking about powers, and it's like no, it's not that. What is it? And then Newton's like it's a force, and it's like oh yeah, like that changes everything, right? <laughs> yeah. and so you know, there, it's just funny that that we do. There's so much in physics that is like really mysterious and 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 we don't really kind of lean into that much it's sort of like you know in fact actually one of the fascinating things about this whole process for me and reading your book and other books like it was um trying to get at what is energy you know it's sort of like uh because energy has this kind of dual uh, significance both in physics but it's also kind of gets taken up into a lot of new age spiritual contexts and things like that and uh we kind of get reified this notion of energy but like energy itself is in some ways kind of mysterious, but it's actually even more than mysterious. Um, Cause once I started digging into it, I'm like, wow, it's actually, it makes a lot more sense, but it's a lot more um, relativistic and, and, uh, and contextual than I ever imagined, if that makes sense. Like I, yeah. it, it's easy to think of energy as being just like this, this thing that flows everywhere. Right. But it's actually like energy is fundamentally relational between two things that are interacting. Uh, and I, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but basically delving into some of these ideas, um, it just enhances the, the magic and the mystery. Right. Um, and I think that, but to, more to your point, it's sort of like, um, I think that being able to describe the process of how something is working uh, mechanistically and being able to say, this causes this, this causes that, um, in some people's minds, that leads to disenchantment and disillusionment and, oh, okay, well, I guess it's not some mystical thing flowing or whatever. But as you say, I think there's another way of conceiving of what mystical is, what spiritual is, as being like, this is just how the world works. And isn't that amazing and incredible and beautiful? And there's something about that old reductionist mentality that wants to, to you know, put the brakes on any articulation of those things that really seem truly, you know, beautiful, mystical, and sublime. It's sort of like, no, that's, that's too religious a language to use about these things. And yet when you're talking about the world self-organizing, you know, such that ineluctably life and consciousness emerges, like 
that's a pretty fascinating story that is worthy of any myth or or tale uh you know of, of religious significance that i'm aware of and that's why i love this so much is because it's this perfect confluence of both science and spirituality it's like there's a healing bridge that's going on here in a lot of these uh, uh things that are coming out and um i find that really exciting you can see the see reality is a very mystical place while completely understanding that everything is mechanistic mm. um and so yeah i think this war between the spiritual and the secular uh is completely unnecessary it's been turning people off from science for far too long it's been making people who are scientists have this worldview this nihilistic worldview that there's no meaning or purpose to anything and i think that's unnecessary as well so it's really nice to see people like the people who are in your community trying to bridge that gap i want to though i want to move into some of the what a lot of people would probably call the juicy stuff which would be consciousness which would be um yeah i mean you talk about free will and you talk about uh teleology agency all that and so um i feel like you know we've we've done a good job we've talked about dissipative structures into uh, adaptive uh, dissipative you know um, complexification into origins of life so you know fast forwarding a little bit um or maybe not actually i mean i because because the question about the relationship of life and consciousness uh i think is an interesting one i, I know that you aren't uh like a, you don't take a panpsychist account and uh that's one of the things you critique um about uh integrated information theory for example is sort of that implication um but yeah talk a little bit about the the relationship of everything we've been discussing to consciousness because you know as your subtitle is how the universe organizes itself to create life consciousness and cosmic complexity where does the consciousness uh element fit in here so let's talk about the difference between an animate and an inanimate system so we mentioned that a rock doesn't do anything uh and a bacterium something that simple uh can perform a process called chemotaxis so chemotaxis uh refers to uh a bacterium swimming towards chemical food and away from toxins so this is very simple system that's kind of just this binary thing it's like a, a cell body and a a little tail a little flagella and basically if it senses a chemical gradient and you know it it eats molecules for food it doesn't eat other organisms it doesn't move its tail and so it 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 just sets and and sits and feeds um if it doesn't sense that uh chemical gradient the tail moves randomly and it just moves it in different directions until it does sense it and then the tail stops again so it's this kind of binary system but it's already doing something intelligent that you don't see non-living systems do you won't see a non-living system move uphill against the force of gravity unless it's being acted on by an external force or it won't swim upstream so what's going on here as i mentioned before these uh systems these basic simple organisms are information processing systems so what the book is really about is about how evolutionary processes create information information inside adaptive systems that gives them this 
purposeful movement we call agency. And so uh, evolutionary processes can be understood as learning processes. So when a system adapts, how it adapts, so the, the classic understanding of evolution is that you have a system that replicates, it makes copies of itself. There's always gonna be uh, inevitable genetic mutation because the copying process isn't perfect. And so you will get a system that has a design making copies with variation on that design. And that variation creates this whole, you know, spectrum of designs. And then natural selection is a filter uh, that weeds out the dysfunctional designs, the designs that can't evade this tendency towards disorder. To evade this tendency towards disorder, you have to be able to extract free energy from the environment uh, because there's a cost to maintaining order against the tendency described by the statistical version of the second law of thermodynamics. So it's really the story about order versus disorder for life and order to persist or functional order, I would say the interesting kinds of order. Uh, it has to extract energy from the environment. It also has to avoid threats. Uh, but to do that, uh, it's not a trivial task. It has to acquire information about its environment. Uh, and if it's acquiring information about its environment through the, uh, the process of adaptation, uh, then you could say in an abstract sense that it's modeling its environment. So again, think about a system that uh, is creating all these different designs, these varied designs, um, and uh, these different designs some of those designs will be well adapted to the environment. So there will be some sort of fit between the system and its environment. So not only does the system encode uh, its environment, model its environment, uh, it's popular to say uh, that a system itself is a model of its environment. So uh, systems that are in water have a certain sort of uh, dynamic shape to them, systems that fly in air have a certain shape. So you can see an organism as a model of its environment in the way a key is a model of the lock it opens. So you have these designs, you're creating designs randomly based on a design that has already been proven to work in the past. And the designs that aren't well adapted to the environment get filtered out. So you're left with these designs, with these blueprints that have been selected by nature. And that's kind of an abstract, abstract concept, but it's really what can navigate its environment, like what can persist in reality because it, it's functional. And so then the, the information that's left over after this natural selection filter has been applied is information that predicts the environment. So a bacterium that swims towards food rather than swimming at random is better adapted and it has uh, more knowledge of its environment than a system that just moves at random. So uh, what evolution is doing is it's creating uh, correlations between a non-equilibrium system, an adaptive agent, and its environment, it's, it's just becoming more fit to that environment. 
And so natural selection is basically an information channel that's pumping information in from the environment into a system. And so a system, uh, a, a living system is a reflection of the universe itself. So life is sort of encoding the reality in which it exists. And we can understand this as the universe starting to model itself and starting to wake up. So I'll pause there, but I'll say that's where we get intelligence. That's where we get cognition with yeah. the origin of life. But I'm saying that cognition might not be enough to create a subjective observe uh, an observer with a subjective perspective mm -hmm. or experience yeah so when we go to sleep our body is still alive and functioning our brain as a physiological organ is still doing things uh, we can even learn in our sleep um and we become conscious again when we go into a dream state but there's periods of time uh, when we're asleep that we're not in a dream so there are periods where we're not conscious. And when you think about this, then the assumption that a bacterium is conscious or a simple plant is conscious, some plants do very complicated, um, you know, signaling, communicating. So, you know, it's, it's hard to say whether, you know, some plants are, are conscious or not. But I don't think we can assume that everything alive is conscious based on that fact. And in the book, I argue that it's not good enough to have a, uh, some sort of model of yeah. the outside world, that a system that's modeling the world. And basically the magic of brains is that it allows the system to encode the, the causal consequences of its actions. So let's say you move and you knock something off, you're like talking to me and you knock your water off and it spills uh, on one of your favorite books, you make a memory of that. And then next time you don't do that. But without a brain, uh, the learning process happens over generations. It's called phylogenetic learning. So evolutionary learning is slow. You have a genome, you create these very designs through the replication process. And then the learning occurs because the ones that are well adapted stick around right but yeah. brain brain yeah brains are just this revolution in information processing and storage machinery that allows uh, a system to um encode the consequences of its action actions and that's what creates a data variable for that organism so in the book i argue that uh, bacteria uh, don't have this self-modeling capacity. So when they, you know, do something uh, to their environment that's not encoded in the genome, they have no way to update their model based on what they just did. Um, and it gets into the ideas of Douglas Hofstadter expressed in his book, Godel Escherbach, and the later book, I Am a Strange Loop. But the idea is that an organism with a brain will have to model the world, but itself you know, is something that's in the world too. So if it models the world, it models itself. And it's the self-modeling that creates a perspective, that creates an observer that's looking at that model. Well, let's let's dive into that a little bit. So what 
Um, you suggested maybe trees are conscious or have something like consciousness, but trees don't have brains. Uh, maybe a better way of, of asking the question would be, at what point would you say that what we think of as consciousness does start to show up? Like, it's not in bacteria, but it is in a mouse. Like, where in between there do we first... Uh, I, 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 would, I would guess that as soon as we have brains, we have something like consciousness. So uh, flatworms, dr drosophila, fruit flies, these very simple... Uh, things with nervous systems um, uh, can learn and uh, learn in real time. Uh, but, you know, you have, you know, things like slime molds, which uh, are learning, you know, in complicated ways. And so I'm not ruling out that there could be plant consciousness, but I do think that we should not always equate cognition and intelligent behavior sure. with an actual subjective perspective. So we can make robots that are, you know, responsive to the environment. Do you think those are sentient? Do you think those have a conscious perspective? And I'm just posing that rhetorically. I don't think they do. Someone might think they have a very minuscule amount of consciousness, but I think uh, consciousness is this mental simulation with an observer and it's not simple for nature to create. Yeah. I mean, for me, the reason why integrated information theory is really helpful is because it can start to answer those questions too. Like a robot could never be conscious because it's a, it's just a feed forward network. You know, it's just, it's very complicated, but there's not a lot of causal power being introduced by all those integrated, uh, you know, um, interconnections in, 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 and that would be the argument. Whereas something like a brain obviously has that. IIT is not panpsychism in the traditional sense, but it is this form, maybe you can call it computational panpsychism that wherever you have integrated information, you have some amount of consciousness. I'm saying that that's probably not even right. That to actually get a subjective perspective and observer, you probably need some self-modeling capacity mm -hmm. that's somewhat complex to actually create this perspective. I don't think we should just take this perspective as a given. And people kind of, you know, Christoph Koch went towards panpsychism because the idea is like, it seemed more mysterious to them that consciousness would just suddenly proof into existence through emergence, that it must make sense that it's this gradual, continual thing, and that everything has a little bit of consciousness. And when you get this functional system, the consciousness kind of adds up and you get this rich consciousness. I don't think that's right. I don't think it's a simple explanation. Um, it is a gradual process um, and it is a continuum as far as information getting built up in a system. So that information takes a, takes a long time. You have this, you know, variation and selection mechanism, which also applies to self-organizing systems uh, in a slightly different form. Um, but the idea is that this information gets built up, a system is modeling its environment, but that the light doesn't come on. You don't get a perspective until the system has self-modeling capacity and maybe rich self-modeling capacity. So yeah, where the line is exactly, I'm not sure if there's like plant consciousness, but um, I would at least say things that work like brains. So uh, systems that have memory that can encode 
the consequences of that agent's actions on the environment. What what would you make of the idea? So one last question about consciousness, and then uh, I want to get into some uh, kind of concluding implications for all this stuff uh, discussion. But um, there's another way of thinking about some of these issues where consciousness is fundamental, but uh, in the same way that maybe like a uh, radio waves, you know, that's just, that's in the background. There's a, there's a, you know, there are radio waves all around us right now, but you need, um, a, a radio to be able to like tune in to what information is there. What would you make yeah. of the idea that something like whatever we're thinking about is this subjective conscious internal world is somehow fundamental, but you need a certain level of complex integrated configural arrangement in order to let that kind of frequency come in. Does that, does that work at all? Exactly. So, hmm. and that's when I said like, maybe the panpsychists, the physicalists and the idealists, you have people like Bernardo Kastrup, maybe we're not saying anything that different. Um, so uh, if the whole universe is this kind of information processing system and you define mind as information processing, then you could say that the universe is conscious and that consciousness may be fundamental, that what's not fundamental is matter, but uh, computation or the relationships between uh, these uh, fundamental uh, units. So, um, because the reason I, I bring up idea, idealism, um, Castro calls it analytic idealism, is because I learned that it recognizes an external reality. Um, and to me, if it recognizes an external reality, it's not really idealism. Idealism mm -hmm. traditionally, hopefully I'm not strawmanning it, but that the universe is in, in, uh, in one's mind. So if analytic idealism recognizes an external reality, in some sense, they might not call it physical. It comes down to, again, a language thing. Mm, like mm. you want to say there's external reality, but it's not physical. I mean, I'm fine with that. Like I said, when you zoom in and you get down to the bottom of matter, you get fields and strings. And whether you want to call those physical kind of depends on how you define physical. Um, and the physicalists and the people who champion illusionism, people like Keith Frankish, they will admit that they're conscious. They're not saying that they're zombie systems that are just input-output machines. And they, they do um, um, acknowledge that they do experience the world. Um, so they're acknowledging consciousness in some way. They're arguing against the reality qualia, which I think is kind of double talk if you define qualia as conscious experiences. Um, so I think that the debates in philosophy of mind are kind of absurd right now and that we're probably all saying something very similar and that that thing that story is probably something along the lines of what you just said that the universe has this capacity for it, but it's only at a certain state where matter finds this configuration through the evolutionary process uh that allows that system to become aware and later mm -hmm. self-aware mm -hmm. and in the book, I argue that the, you know, if you follow the trajectory of this process and life spreads throughout the universe and is, uh, you know, this forming this integrated uh, collective unit of life, 
that you can get consciousness on higher scales, that consciousness is multiply realizable. And if the universe is evolving towards something like a cosmic, a cosmic mind, like a cosmic attractor that some very smart people have speculated about, like Paul Davies and Ray Kurzweil and um, the Anthropic Cosmological Principle is a book in the 80s that talked about this, uh, written by uh, Barrow and Tipler. That would seem like, you know, something that someone could call an emergent panpsychism, that the universe is waking up and that the whole thing can be conscious, uh, potentially, but that it's not conscious to begin with. The big question for me about all this is where the is where it starts kind of leading to the metaphysical uh, uh, questionings about the whole thing. Right. Um, When you start thinking about art, because everything that we're talking about in this conversation so far has been naturalistic. It's been mechanistic. All this is happening. There's no recourse to anything, you know, supernatural or whatever. Um, But even when you get into questions about like the, uh, what happened before the big bang, right? Like that becomes a metaphysical question. It's one that scientists are interested in because it's a, it relates, it's, it's sort of the, it's the extrapolation from, you know, known reality. Uh, it might be outside of our ken or our ability to ever get there. Even questions around multiverses have become, you know, scientifically, um, you know, acceptable, even though they're completely not empirical. Um, so for me, I think where this starts to lead is once you start painting this picture and there's this, this narrative that fills in, it's sort of like the question is, what's the thing that got it going? What's the thing yeah. that, you know, what's the impetus for all this? And which is really just another way of, re, you know, I'm just reframing the question you were getting at, which is like, what's it all about? Why? Why is the universe complexifying towards consciousness? What what framework do we set this cosmic narrative in to? And, and a lot of this, this at this point becomes speculative, metaphysical, philosophical even. But, uh, but those are the questions I wanted to throw by you at having, you know, written this book of detailing the narrative. It's sort of like, you know, what, what is, what gets it going? What does it all mean? Yeah. So, okay. We're going to get into the, the big stuff, the deep stuff. Um, first, I guess let's talk about uh, this complexification process, which ultimately has to do with the fine tuning of the laws and constants of physics. Um, people who like to speak cautiously, like to, put a qualifier there and say apparent fine tuning. Uh, I'm not sure we need that apparent fine tuning, just like I'm not sure we need to to say apparent teleology in um, simple living systems or uh, yeah, because uh, you have something moving with purpose or evolving towards some goal state. And that's, it is what it is. There's no reason to say apparent. Let's talk about fine tuning and design or apparent design. And let's talk about the potential explanations for why it could have that fine tuning. So if you are to buy this story about life becoming more complex, and we actually left out like kind of the main argument of the book, especially like in part two from this talk, which is really trying to explain why the biosphere as a whole is becoming more complex and why you see this trend towards higher complexity. So just to quickly mention that you have uh, a trend towards more complex species over time because the energy extraction problem 
becomes harder computationally. So a plant extracting sunlight is a lot more simple problem than um, a heterotrophic organism, an organism that eats other organisms, which are other intelligent agents. So those things move in more unpredictable ways, uh, which requires more uh, sophisticated modeling machinery. So basically there's this trend towards complexity because as nature explores these designs through this, you know, variation and selection process, you will get designs that unlock new sources of energy um, that require more complex uh, energy extraction and threat avoidance machinery. You also have another mechanism that is often left out of the picture in evolutionary textbooks, which are these evolutionary transitions. Now, evolutionary transitions, also called metasystem transitions by uh, the cybernetics, uh, uh, by the cybernetician Valentin Turchin, um, are basically these transitions where uh, individuals come together to make larger functional units. And these transitions are really a continuation of uh, phase transitions that we talk about in basic physics. Um, so these would be higher order phase transitions. So uh, evolutionary transitions, uh, to give some examples, or to give, I guess, all of the major examples, you have molecules coming together to make a cell. You have cells coming together to make a multicellular organism. You have these organisms coming together to make societies. And now we have something like a global brain that has emerged on the planet Earth, uh, predicted by Kilhard de Chardin when he talked about the newosphere. Um, that's kind of what has emerged with the internet and now blockchain. Uh, systems. So it seems like part of this cosmic evolutionary process is nature's most fundamental components coming together to make larger functional wholes. And when that happens, you get more complex information storage machinery. So we start off with just life and, you know, without brains, you have just genetic memory kind of stores all the memory of life. Then you have neural memory with the emergence of brains. Then you have cultural uh, memory when with collectives of people and you know cultures that have uh, things traditions that have been passed down then you get uh, books and journals and then you get the internet with wiki pages so you can really see the biosphere as evolving through these evolutionary transitions and these evolutionary transitions are creating increasingly uh, uh, powerful um, uh, memory systems um, uh, or knowledge repositories. Um, and these systems are not just uh, just storing information. The reason I say that they're powerful is that they're also control systems. They're cybernetic systems that use uh, feedback to uh, maintain the ordered state. So you get this hierarchical, hierarchical emergence where you have these nested systems. You have things that come together and they make these larger functional units and this is a very robust architecture for a system because, for example, when a society uh, falls apart, like the fall of Rome, uh, the individuals can reassemble. Um, so nature has this very um, discovered this very robust system design through the evolutionary process, which um, 
is taught in like, um, you know, optimal control theory and engineering courses. So you have this process that's creating these cybernetic systems of increasing complexity. We now have a global brain on earth. There could be something like a global mind already. Maybe it's an unconscious mind, but there's this collective information processing and its products are science and technology and culture. And uh, perhaps you could have a consciousness uh, at this larger scale. Um, maybe you have to see dynamics that are similar to um, conscious brain states, because we've already discussed there's unconscious uh, physiological brain states. So maybe that would be a guide to kind of, you know, the emergence of uh, a global mind. Um, maybe it's not described in that way um, most accurately. Maybe the next emergence beyond life and then consciousness is something of a spiritual nature. That's how, how uh, Harold Morowitz described it, um, kind of in the spirit of Teilhard. And um, which I want to touch on at, at, well, maybe I'll just touch on it here briefly because I don't want to go too much into it. But uh, I do just want to throw this out there that uh, I feel like that distinction is an important one that that could be meaningfully, uh, you know, delved into a little bit more if we had more time, because uh, one of the things that can make me a little uncomfortable, even with folks who totally buy this complexification narrative, is when it goes into the direction of basically technology, the kind of Kurtzwell singularity stuff, that to me, I feel like misses something really profound. And uh, rather than a more kind of Deschardins approach, which is that, you know, this complexification isn't just going to lead to us, you know, terraforming other planets and, you know, basically colonizing things at a, at a grander level than ever before and kind of just kind of redoing all the kinds of modernist oppression systems that we've done, but just exponentially now, you know, yeah. like that to me doesn't appeal as much as, um, well, hey, if we're deepening consciousness, if we're deepening insight and, uh, and, and feeling and uh, the richness of subjectivity, and if uh, subjective and objective are coming more and more together, and we're gaining more and more causal power of the world, but we're also becoming more intuitive and more um, sympathetic towards all the parts that are, uh, you know, configuring the various holes that that we're that we ourselves are a part of etc there's a much more spiritual way that you could articulate this and um i feel like one kind of tends in the direction of a kind of modernist enthusiastic utopian aspiration of uh kind of a star trek future which is fine but i feel like we're missing something really crucial to the whole narrative if, if there isn't uh that fundamental spiritual component in there as well and i guess maybe and I, again, I don't want to interrupt if you if you were on a particular trajectory of thought there, but that's sort of maybe a, what, another way of framing the question, right? Is it sort of like, um, is all this headed towards just technical utopia cyborg world, or is all this heading towards I don't know the realization of a of a more spiritual society with greater kindness, with greater openness, and also maybe the the emergence of yeah, like superhuman consciousness, a godlike consciousness that might be. Uh, you know, benevolent, uh, compassionate or something, something even like, uh, 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 I don't know, that, that there's a, a way that almost like you could think about this whole process giving birth to to God, really, if, if we were thinking about like, you know, the kind of omega endpoint of like, ever increasing uh, conscious depth matched with ever increasing sort of uh, 
you know, universal benevolence, um, something like that sounds very, uh, you know, spiritually fulfilling in that sense. So those are kind of two trajectories where they might part a little bit. I don't know if you have any thoughts on something or any of that. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. I just don't know where to begin. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, answer well, that question right, so in two minutes. No. Yeah, I, I will say that I think there is this moral arc to evolution that that it's a it's a moral evolution because as we become conscious and we develop this theory of mind where we know that there are other conscious agents in the world that have beliefs and desires and feelings and the capacity to suffer, you will see this natural tendency toward a more compassionate world. And I know that we have a lot of counterexamples to that, but um, the book really explains uh, something that I call Popper's principle, named after the great philosopher of science, Karl Popper. Uh, and that principle is uh, that problems create progress. So progress isn't this straight march. Um, it's not teleological, as in if you define teleology as some like kind of mystical force, like pushing things in the direction of progress. Um, it's teleological in this more mechanistic sense. And basically how it works is that life always faces these survival problems, these existential challenges, starting with the, that narrative that's based on the second law of thermodynamics tendency towards decay. Life is trying to evade this tendency towards disorder. And uh, in doing that, um, it has to continually solve problems, almost like a puzzle. Um, one problem is for life to persist in the long term. It has to get off the planet before our star dies. So these problems create this imperative uh, for solutions and for progress. And that is what that, that's sort of the engine of this, this whole uh, process. Um, so well, it's kind I, of dualistic. Yeah. They're like, there's like, you know, well, order versus disorder, life versus entropy or life versus chaos. And then, you know, knowledge versus ignorance. And there does seem to be this grand narrative that I think meta modernism would be happy to accept. I, 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 I've, I, hmm. the whole element of the book, which again, we, yeah, we kind of skipped over a little bit, but it's really crucial. The whole element of knowledge creation that basically this is a, uh, an engine for knowledge creation mm -hmm. and, and, and the universe kind of, as you say, modeling itself. And uh, again, I'm, I'm inclined towards more kind of idealist uh, philosophical spiritual interpretations of this narrative. And so that to me dovetails so well with like a Hegelian sense of like, you know, uh, the spirit coming to absolute knowledge, basically. And uh, I mean, going all the way back to Aristotle's notion of, I guess, what he would call have called God, which is like, you know, God contemplating God's self or something is sort of like yeah. the universe is contemplating or learning about itself. Um, and we are a part of that process uh, would be a, a more kind of maybe more spiritual framing of uh, of all these ideas. So uh, there are there are some transhumanist people that believe that like life is going to get phased out and that like replaced by like AIs or, you know, maybe and we can yeah. maybe upload ourselves. I don't, I'm not very convinced by those arguments. And so even Ray Kurzweil doesn't think that AI is going to replace humans. He thinks that um, we're going to sort of, you know, have our design upgraded by technology, but uh, that that design is going to be very much rooted in biological design and that, um, you know, what I would something I discovered that I didn't know when I started the book was this um, fact that uh, life does 
the most efficient computation from a thermodynamic perspective uh, compared to, you know, artificial systems that mm. we have. So uh, evolution has basically optimized uh, computation that life does to stay far from equilibrium. So I don't think that uh, human agents are going to get replaced. I think that um, if anything, technology, uh, so I, I wouldn't call this like what we're heading towards, like a post-biological world. I call it in the book, a hyper-biological world, because I think that uh, biological core is going to persist and that all of the things that sort of make us human, all the kind of romantic things we care about, love, empathy, I think that's only going to get amplified uh, by technology, not replaced. So I do think people like um, uh, Teilhard uh, would be okay with the technological advancement. Mm -hmm. He kind of saw the technological process as being part of this. So I'm not sure there needs to be this kind of culture war between the two sides, yeah. which I do see because it's interesting because I didn't know there was that sort of battle there. And I had joined these different groups that were, you know, I was while writing the book, trying to surround myself with people who were part of these communities. But um, the Future Fossils community that uh, Michael Garf Garfield runs and uh, your community as well, I do see this kind of, um, you know, uh, dislike of kind of like the transhumanist stuff and with very good reason. Um, I think, you know, that some of these people have a, a, a scary uh um picture of the future that we might kind of want to veer away from we might actually need to veer away from that um but at the same time i don't think we need i was gonna say i don't think we need to return to nature like just but you know i don't like the way that sounds either but um i don't think we can even if we wanted to this is a train that's moving in this direction of progress and you get all of this technology. So what we really need to do is steer it in the direction that we want. Yeah. And this whole process is actually, it's kind of built in to do that because life's always adapting and self-correcting that it is going to go, even though there's going to be constant catastrophes and problems that life has to solve as a phenomenon, as a whole, it's going to adapt and learn and you know we're going to go in this direction of something like a cosmic mind whether there's a consciousness that wakes up or whether these you know individual agents are the only points of consciousness and that there's some spiritual feeling accompanying this you know unified state i'm not sure i want to jump back real quick though because i want to um one of the last questions i want to ask is part of these big implication questions is sort of, you know, again, for me, is like, what got this going, right? This is not, if you look at it with the fine tuning and where it's all, what the trajectory is, it looks like a thing that was like set up to happen. You know what I mean? It's not just sort of a, you know, an accident yeah. in that sense. Right. And I know you have a, an argument too, where you talk about uh, cosmological evolution, but as you point out, even there, it still leads to a, a universe or, or the proliferation of universes that are biophilic and thus, you know, ultimately kind of lead to consciousness. So that's another metaphysical question is like, what set this up? Because it, it seems like it was more than just, you know, happenstance, uh, yeah. Okay. Let's, let's get into that. That's the most fun part, probably the most controversial part of the whole book. 
what does that mean? Like, how does it, why is it this way? So I don't think that's um, a question that we can't ask. I think we have to ask that question. Uh, basically, yeah, what does that mean? So you have to have very fine-tuned parameters. So interestingly, you know, this is in the book, I, I kind of call this framework uh, the integrated evolutionary synthesis because it integrates thermodynamics and evolution, information theory, cybernetics, epistemology into one cohesive narrative that's really life versus this tendency towards disorder. But then I talk about poetic metanaturalism, which is what I named the, the kind of natural philosophy that emerges from this view, which was kind of a play on words of Sean Carroll's poetic naturalism, but it's very different. I also talk about the cosmic perspective as something like the metamodern religion that's not a religion, even though I don't use that word, that's kind of the idea. Um, looking at it from this, you know, scale that we're looking at it right now. But one reason uh, I use that term metanatural is because there is no clear line between the natural, the, the physical and the metaphysical or the natural and the metanatural. Um, we may be ignorant of things that uh, make it such that today's metaphysics is tomorrow's physics. Now, let me give you one big example of that. And it's interesting because this fine tuning problem discovered by cosmologists in the 70s and 80s really led to this widening of uh, our physical you know, picture of the world. Uh, basically, that got expanded into what was considered metaphysical previous to that. Mm -hmm. So the answer for a lot of atheists about the fine tuning problem is that we're one universe in this collection of universes that may be super, super huge or infinite. It's not clear, you know, which of those two that this model even, you know, describes, but, and that, that's a problem too, because, you know, I think if anyone's going to go with this explanation for fine tuning, they have to explain that. But um, yeah, uh, it, these other universes aren't anything that we can empirically test, as you said. So to some scientists, you know, people like uh, Sabine uh, Hossenfelder, am I saying her last name right? Um, she argues that, you know, these multiverse theories aren't scientific theories because they can't be tested. Right. And while I disagree with her about many things, um, that, that's a valid point. I think that's right. However, science does need to attempt to answer questions. It needs to try to solve the problems that nature poses us. This fine-tuning problem is a problem. It is a question that uh, deserves us thinking about it. And that, that problem requires that we think, you know, larger. We go outside the system that's our universe. We have to do that if we want to explain fine-tuning. Um, but, you know, traditionally people say God designed it or you have this multiverse and we're just one small life-friendly universe in a multiverse that's overwhelmingly lifeless and meaningless. Now, I don't think that's a good explanation. And I get into this in the last chapter of the book, and this is a bit in the weeds, but um, first of all, our universe isn't just life-friendly. So it's, it's teleological, it's self-organizing, it's complexifying uh, such that life is not just this transient phenomena that can exist, but that it must exist. 
and that it must expand because it's always adapting and it's learning from its mistakes. If you have this multiverse model trying to explain away design and fine tuning, you have to say, okay, there's this giant multiverse of all these lifeless universes, and there's some life-friendly universes, and maybe there's some even of these teleological universes that become more and more complex. But if that's true, then the set of life-friendly universes should be much larger than the set of full-blown teleological self-organizing universes. If we're just to find ourselves in a universe that supports life by chance, it wouldn't statistically, it wouldn't be likely that it would be uh, this teleological universe. We would find ourselves, it would be more likely in this larger subset of universes, even though it's small compared to the lifeless universes, it's still much larger than this teleological. So uh, I don't think that's a good explanation. Also, it makes the problem harder. We had to explain like one universe. Now we have to explain how we get, you know, an infinite amount of universes. It's a harder problem. It hasn't simplified the problem. Um, well, there's this other uh, natural option that's called cosmological natural selection that I think does a very elegant job at explaining that. And I'll try to, to be quick with this. Um, but the idea uh, created by Lee Smolin, very respected cosmologist in the 90s, and you know it has been written about by like Dan Dennett, Richard Dawkins, people who are considered like you know secularists, if not atheists. Um, the idea is that uh, you have singularities, right? So you have a Big Bang creates a universe, um, but we also have these singularities uh, known as black holes. So in this model, the idea is that when a black hole gets created in our universe, that's a big bang that creates another universe in this larger sort of Darwinian multiverse. So a big bang forms in this universe and it inherits the laws and constants of our universe, but with some small tweak because there's nature is thermally noisy. There's this this fluctuating aspect to nature. So you get a variation in selection mechanism. You get different universes that um, explore this sort of design space and explore this space of possible tunings. And the idea is that you would start off with a universe that doesn't have life, but uh, it's stable enough to form black holes. And that over time, you will inevitably get one that forms life because the uh, the properties that make a universe stable enough to be a universe that doesn't just, you know, expand before any uh, bodies can can coalesce under the force of gravity or do the opposite. Um, you will get. Um, uh, so so those properties that make universes that make black holes are also the same properties that allow for carbon based life. And so if life emerges inevitably through this process um, and then life reaches the level of technology where we can create universes by engineering black holes and very respected cosmologists like Alan Guth, who kind of invented cosmic uh, inflation theory, says, you know, we can possibly do this with like particle accelerators um, and create a universe. Um, then you have this kind of elegant mechanism where it's similar to Darwinian mechanism, but instead of an organism making copies of itself, it's a universe. 
and then the universe. Um, uh, so you have uh, this kind of inevitable uh, movement towards more fine-tuned universes because there would be selection for universes that are good at creating more universes. And the ones that are best at that would be a technologically savvy uh, universe, uh, one, one with life that can engineer these yeah. And this is where, you know, some of these things start veering into, you know, I, I don't mean this pejoratively, but science fiction, you know, and they start kind of uh, leaning more into the uh, the transhumanist kind of, uh, in some ways, element of it. Um, and I, again, I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. It just seems like uh, less of a, well, I'll just say that. The other thing I was going to say is, is, is that um, it doesn't necessarily even like many of these proposed answers solve the question it kind of just sets the goalpost back a little bit so that you know sort of like um because if that begins with a universe because it that still creates a dynamic in which the multiverse if you want to call it that is set up to produce you know conscious life which is sort of like it's the same it's the same thing as a single universe that's teleological right so yeah just kind of move it setting setting the 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 need to answer a particular question kind of back a little bit further um but it might not be bad because it explains why our constants are so fine-tuned um mm -hmm. so so it may be helpful but it doesn't fundamentally change the teleological picture right you still have an existence that inevitably leads to life and then life starts to spread throughout that existence and sort of take over this process. So, so what are the other options? Are we ready to go with God? Um, yeah, let me try to, to get into this and break it down a bit. Um, I should say that when I said the, the universe isn't conscious, but that it's waking up, I imagine it to be something like analogous uh, to like a seed that develops into a tree. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we don't think the seed is conscious. Most of us don't as far as like having a subjective perspective. But that seed does have intelligence because it has DNA. It has uh, an evolutionary program, a developmental program mm -hmm. that ensures that the seed uh, evolve into something like uh, a tree. So uh, the universe, um, the the fine the fine tuning. Uh, so the. Um, the laws of physics and the constants uh, have been described by some cosmologists as um, playing the role of something like cosmic DNA. Mm. So that this basically ensures this evolutionary process, this developmental program. Um, and if you believe that, then there is in the fine tuning something like mind that leads to this, you know, collective, uh, I mean, this cosmic consciousness okay so um i made this point on joe rogan recently uh who you helped me prepare for in a mock interview so i have to thank you for that um but i made this point that the simulation theory and uh sort of god theory or, or intelligent design theory uh those two things are pretty much functionally equivalent so the kind of intelligent design theory that I don't like, which is like the, the theory of, of creationism, which I don't think is compatible with, you know, scientific uh, law, is that there was this static universe and that you had this supernatural agent that they call God 
put life on it in this act that defies, you know, the causal closure of the universe. This idea that only things inside the system, physical things, can cause other things. Um, so I don't think that's very compelling, and you really can't make a good argument for that. But that's very different. That kind of theism is different from deism. And I think our greatest physicists from like uh, Newton to Maxwell, um, Godel was very religious. Um, some of our most brilliant thinkers uh, were deists. And that's why there was this talk that even Stephen Hawking adopted that, you know, understanding the physical laws was like trying to uh, understand the mind of God. And so what's crucially different about deism is it's this belief that there was this designer that created the initial conditions and, and the laws and constants of physics and then doesn't intervene, just lets the system evolve according to its own laws and dynamics. And so now when you have this Trinity simulation theory, uh, proposed by Nick Bostrom um, and uh, obviously influenced by The Matrix. And um, his paper actually came out a couple of years after The Matrix came out. So The Matrix was first. Um, I'm sure it goes back to sci-fi before that. But people like Elon Musk, even Neil deGrasse Tyson are talking about simulation theory. And the idea is that we're not in base reality and that um, we're kind of this intelligent creation of intelligent agents who are outside the system, meaning that reality is larger than what we thought and that there are these levels, these layers. So it's like an onion that's, you know, bigger. And when I was talking about the name metanaturalism, poetic metanaturalism, it's kind of pointing out that like what we consider physical today might expand to include what we considered metaphysical yesterday. So you can't really define nature. You only define nature according to your paradigm, which again has uncertainty and ignorance. So, you know, a metaphysical theory of like, you know, these more layers to reality or multiverse, um, that can be, become science, even if it's not testable, if there's a problem that must be explained. Um, and I think that's kind of neat because it means like we don't know what the you know line is between like natural and su supernatural or um, even science and pseudoscience, there are going to be things that we find out that used to seem magical to us. And then we just learn the mechanistics, the, the mechanisms behind it. So if I had a garage door opener and I showed it to Isaac Newton, he would think that was magic. But then when I, because we had no model of electromagnetism back then. Yeah. So when I explained that, then they accept it. And then their uh, model of reality becomes bigger. Anyway, so let me get to the point about God. Um, if you have a design theory that doesn't say that there's any supernatural intervention, it's just an intelligent agent that created the system, that is completely equivalent to some sort of simulation theory. And when we say simulation, like this world is real as far as if I stub my toe on the bed, uh, that's going to hurt. So the outside world kicks back and we're not sort of creating that. Sometimes we might get up like we're still half asleep and then stub our toe. So it's not like my mind created that reality. There's something external there that is kicking back. So 
even the simulation theory. Yeah, I think it's basically like a transhumanist version of religion. But I don't necessarily think that's bad because I don't think these religions are bad. I think basically religions might be intuitions about there being this design and maybe an intelligent agent uh, that designed it. And we see that this isn't a supernatural theory if you just expand your conception of what reality is. Yeah, well, so two two potential uh, uh, arguments maybe against that, or at least uh, questions uh, about that would be, all right, one would be, again, I feel like we, we get this kind of infinite regress where, you know, we we solve one problem, but then we kind of just create another, right? So it's sort of like, you know, where did intelligent life come and blah, blah, blah. Oh, well, intelligent life was created by intelligent life in some other, you know, base reality. So I feel like there's a, a critique there of sort of like it's in, you know, it's intelligent life all the way down. Yeah. Uh, uh, so that'd be one. And then two would be, um, well, there's, this is sort of actually, it's almost three points. Two would be um, if it, if you're dealing with a simulation theory and let's say that, let's say this whole universe, right. was programmed by some sentient being and some base reality. And we're experiencing that. Um, maybe we're just, you know, living in some massive computer simulation, let's say, right. Um, now what's to stop that intelligent being from sort of like, uh, logging in and kind of hacking the code a little bit here or there, you know, like being like, oh, yeah. you know, I'm going to do this. And then we would perceive that as this breaks the laws of physics. This doesn't, you know, yeah. and so at that point you're into the realm of the supernatural, right? You haven't, you basically just articulated supernatural in terms of a, you know, lower level base reality naturalism. Um, and in that sense, I feel like that runs afoul of the yeah, whole scientific yeah. enterprise, right? Um, because, because Maybe not. That, well, well, but then the question is, why don't you think that uh, creationism is, is compatible with what you're saying? If, you know, if we really take seriously the idea that what we think of as being supernatural could become naturalized in some way, um, why not open it up to anything, you know, like anything because, goes magic, yeah. astrology, whatever, you know, like where, where does that go? So this is where I would kind of lean on Popper. Um, I think it's an unjustified leap uh, right now. If, if things started happening, like something that would be like, oh, I just saw that uh, rock, like go up and down. Mm. I would have to start creating some sort of theory about why. And now that we have reached a point in technology where we create these simulated worlds with little video game characters, you might try to explain that through some sort of model where there mm. is some sort of agent that created the world. Whether you call that religion or the simulation theory is completely a, a semantics a pointless exercise in semantics. Well, actually, wait, uh, let me stop you there. Cause I, uh, here's another interesting thing too, though. Cause I don't think it is purely semantics, right? Like, for example, in the religious context, the creator is benevolent, all-knowing, all-loving, you know, all this, right? In the simulation theory, it could be some some dude, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, it, could yeah. be, it needs to be some some slobby dude. It's like, oh, okay, that doesn't really, that's not, you know, if we're if we're concerned about the the nihilism of uh, of reductionism, you know, there's a, a nihilism potentially in some of these answers. Uh, in the transhumanist sphere of just being like, well, what are we, you know, we're some cosmic alien named Kevin made us in his basement, you know, sort of a, Mickey, a Rick and Morty universe. I don't know if I want to live in that one either. 
Yeah, let me let me push back on that a little bit. So Freeman Dyson has this quote. He says, I do not make any clear distinction between mind and God. God is what mind becomes when it is passed beyond the scale of our comprehension. So here's my answer to that. Uh, if you believe that this evolutionary process has this sort of moral trajectory where as you become more intelligent and powerful because you're a conscious entity and have an understanding that there are other conscious entities that are like you and have the capacity to suffer like you, that would say that anyone that goes towards this trajectory ultimately will come upon, you know, you'll see this convergence toward this ideology that I call the cosmic perspective in the book, which is a fundamentally compassionate theory. Mm. Um, and it's a theory of like, you know, integrated information theory, as you said, says you can have all these other conscious systems a long time ago, you know, with Descartes, he just thought humans were conscious. That's why he did, you know, experiments on dogs with no anesthetics and didn't feel any guilt about that. And I think that's a good example of, you know, some sort of um, inaccurate scientific worldview leading to atrocities. Mm. And that actually had a religious basis because he thought, you know, only humans had souls, which was strange too, because he, you know, associated consciousness with the pineal gland. And as far as I know, dogs, neuroanatomy, they have pineal glands. Anyway, um, so if you do get a creator of the universe, of a universe, it would very likely have a lot of the attributes that we see in organized religion. Maybe when people are, you know, coming up with these religions, it's just um, the, the, the brain, the mind is doing computation, and it seems like a really logical answer to these deep mysteries. But here's what I'm going to say about that. So even if there is something like a God or some sort of intelligent programmer, um, how did that person get there? It is the infinite regress problem. And then you can explain that emergence of that God through an evolutionary process, through something like the cosmological natural selection theory. But it does tell us something interesting. It tells us reality might have all these levels, these layers. And if it does, there's no, you know, no uh, way right now I see a good way to estimate how many layers there are. So it's very hard to put a probability on whether we're in, you know, base reality or the second reality or the hundredth or the millionth or trillionth. Um, so I do think it introduces this kind of relativity into the picture where when we say, are we living in a simulation, that might not even be a meaningful question because the word simulation, you know, might like when I hear simulation, it's to talk about things on a Turing machine, this digital world that isn't the physical world. It's less real or something. Yeah. So yeah. I think if we're going to use the word simulation and then we're saying we're living in one, uh, it's kind of confusing the definition of that. So yeah. we just, it, it reduces to religion. You just say we're in a creation of a physical system that isn't base reality. And even if that's true, and there's an intelligent agent in this more base reality that created us, there's nothing to say that that um, agent uh, isn't created by another agent. 
Um, so here's the this kind of final point is that if you have this open-ended evolutionary process where reality complexifies, it will necessarily at some point create gods. And gods are what Freeman Dyson said, just, uh, you know, mind when it's passed beyond the scale of our comprehension. So I don't think there needs to be this, you know, war between religion and science anymore. Even if religion was true, it would be just like you said, we would start to expand our scientific worldview to include this agent. We would have questions about this agent. Um, but the agent itself could be a product of the evolutionary process. But you still have an evolutionary process that inevitably creates life, agency, gods. So that's the big mystery. And in the book, I say, really what God is, if such a thing exists, or if it's a useful concept, is this process of recursive emergence. It's this process of continual creation that is very different from the idea of a static universe, one of being. This is a universe of becoming, and it is a fundamentally creative reality. So reality is not just a static thing that tends towards disorder. It's intrinsically creative, and we are its poetic expressions. And uh, this pattern that we see with an adaptive system or an organism, it gets realized at larger and larger levels. And the more complex and computationally powerful this thing becomes, the more it starts to look like a god. Well, what do you what do you think of this? I'll I'll, I'll probably close with this because we're we're uh, pretty late in the conversation. Um, if the universe is waking up into this hyper consciousness, yeah. What if? All right, I'll, I'll begin it this way. A fine-tuned uh, universe, um, the reason why intelligent designers and other people want to do the God thing there is because, well, it's like the watchmaker idea, right? You find a watch on the, on the ground. It's like, oh, this pot, there's an intelligence behind this, right? This, this seems intentional, right? Similarly, uh, so a, a, a fine-tuned universe seems to suggest a consciousness. Now, my kind of God option here would be what if... If there isn't consciousness per se at the beginning of the universe, as we know it, right, but there is at the end of the universe, maybe even some hyper consciousness, godlike consciousness, could that be the consciousness that set the parameters of the fine tuning uh, to lead to itself? That would be option A, or maybe a, that creates certain kind of circular loops, which might be paradoxical. So maybe another way of framing it would be is whatever that consciousness that develops at the end, and, and by end, I don't mean the final utmost end, but just so down the line, let's say, could a consciousness like that have established the fine tuning parameters for our universe, right? Maybe in some other context beyond this universe, something like that. You mentioned this very interesting idea that somehow the final state created the initial state. And I know Paul Davies and some others have talked about it. When I was writing the book, you know, I, I was talking to a friend who I met in like 2004. We, uh, a bunch of us met on these MySpace uh, science boards and, you know, discussing these, you know, biggest questions about science. But um, that that was one potential option that somehow the final state, you know, necessitates the initial state. And I didn't get to include it in the book because of a deadline. 
but I'm not sure how that works either. So maybe that's will open up like a discussion. Maybe you can explain that to me. But that would be, I guess, the most elegant thing if this whole process is some kind of loop. And then, uh, yeah, we have this sort of recursive reality that creates itself. I also I want to throw out another. Here's a real psychedelic kind of take on all this real quick, because, you know, this would take some getting into. But um, in many religions, uh, there's some notion of a fall. Right. There's, um, you know, in the Christian tradition, there's the there's the. The, uh, the, the angels, you know, fall from heaven. Basically, there's some kind of falling away from God, but that gets interpreted in all sorts of ways in the early theologians. Um, you know, uh, Origen, the uh, theologian, who's one of my favorite, who's kind of a, almost, he has some very unorthodox, well, what become unorthodox positions that the church later takes. He, he has a whole reincarnation idea and all this sort of stuff. But he basically thinks that, you know, angels uh, fall and can become redeemed so that even, even Satan, you know, in the Christian tradition could become redeemed. So thinking about all this metaphorically and mythologically, um, I'm really intrigued by the idea of uh, the beatific vision, which is something that Dante describes in the Paradiso, which is basically that, you know, maybe translated into more, you know, less mythological language, it would be something like, there is some kind of grand godlike reality that consciousness is sort of fixated on when it reaches a certain level of, um, well, you know, whether you want to call that enlightenment or whether you want to call that um, purification or, you know, whatever you want to call that. But th there's this idea of the beatific gaze, which is a really beautiful poetic idea. And that, um, and that you can, uh, you can kind of get distracted from that. And you kind of fall away from that. People have DMT experiences, wind up back in this realm they're like oh yeah of course i was always here how did i how did oh of course you know like what did i and actually bringing in dmt experiences into some of this could be a really interesting avenue of exploration too because one of the common phenomena or phenomenological uh accounts is basically people waking back up uh, to like where they've always been and where it's and the state that they've always been in is this sort of like beautiful serene beatific vision sort of state so i'm really intrigued by the idea of like consciousnesses being in some kind of a uh, uh a beatific divine uh fixated state on 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 the ultimate mystery as it were becoming distracted maybe the way we get distracted in meditation we our mind wanders whatever and in this instance that distraction that falling away looks like forgetting your true nature. And so you're, you show up in, you know, the universe or you are a universe. And then suddenly you've got to get back to your, um, your state of conscious awareness. And so what if the whole universe was a, an unfolding of the narrative of basically trying the universe be trying to wake back up to its true self-identity through the processes that you're talking about, modeling itself, gaining self-knowledge, all this sort of thing, so that you get that sort of ultimate mind, which is then sort of like, oh yeah, like the beatific vision, the the divine mystery and all this sort of stuff. So that would be a real psychedelic kind of take on all this, um, a mythological kind of articulation of the idea of the potential significance of the universe waking up to itself that's situated in sort of a, uh, a kind of relationship to some kind of ultimate divine mystery that it is beholding and has forgotten or something like that. I find those kinds of ways to think about it pretty cool. Yeah, I think it's definitely worth our time. And uh, you see that like science only goes so far with answering these biggest of questions. We have to get into philosophical and metaphysical territory. And I think that's kind of, you know, how I see metamodernism 
is, you know, take what we understand from science and then that kind of unknown realm, look to these, you know, other worldviews, these other philosophies and theories. I just think the thing that we need to do to kind of ground everything is to use those to make predictions and then um, kind of kind of test those if some of those things are possible. Um, but yeah, I, I, I love it. And um, yeah, this was a, this was a amazing conversation really got me thinking about a lot of things and the way you uh, frame stuff really helped me to articulate ideas that uh, I just previously uh, couldn't. Well, likewise, again, as I've said, and I've recommended the book to, you know, a lot of people and a lot of people have bought it and I hope that they really like it. But I just, again, want to recommend this book. It does a great job. Anything that we've been talking about, if you're interested, you know, uh, it, it's in here. I assume maybe down the, the road, there'll be another book that uh, you go in, in additional directions. I don't know. We'll I, I want to I want to turn the ideas in the book into something like the religion. That's not a religion, the cosmic mm. perspective um, and something like a self-help system. Uh, so the, the a self-help tendency, a section or a self-help book for uh, reductionist uh, materialists, yeah. <laughs> how to find meaning in a meaningful world. Yeah, go on. Yeah, sorry. no, the tentative title would be uh, Your Cosmic Purpose, uh, Self-Help for the Individual and Society. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so uh, I have a YouTube channel and a subset called Road to Omega. The Omega uh, comes from Teilhard de Chardin. Deschardin's uh, mega point theory. And the mm -hmm. idea is that we can apply these principles from uh, systems theory and evolutionary theory and cybernetics to society because the evolutionary process uh, is very efficient at optimizing systems. And so we can start to think about governance systems and uh, economic and political systems. And uh, this idea that we are uh, creating something like a global brain. Um, so how you know, uh, what should we do next? Um, how yeah. do we facilitate the, the emergence of a global mind? So if you want to go follow those, that channel in the Substack, Road to Omega, um, that'd be great. And if you um, order the book and screenshot the receipt and email it to me, because the receipt should have your address, to the romance of reality at gmail.com, I will uh, mail you a book plate that will be a sticker that goes in the book. So it's signed and numbered. I'm only doing a thousand of those. And I've gotten like a hundred pre-orders so far. So um, yeah, that would be awesome. Cool. Awesome. Uh, Bobby Azarian, thank you so much. This was a joy, a pleasure. And uh, I assume given that there's so much to talk about, we'll, we'll probably be talking again, hopefully before long. But uh, thank you very much, my friend. Really appreciate it. That'd be great. Thank you. And thanks to anyone else who has made it uh, this far. <laughs>